Welcome to the Westside Barbell Podcast. Today's guest is Dustin Brancho. Dustin is the Director of Strength and Conditioning at Advantage Sports. Dustin, thank you for being on. Um, thank you for putting through with all this uh, technical difficulties to get this podcast up and going. Um, we're talking to you in one of the most busiest parts of your season. Can you give us a, an update on what you're up to? Yeah, no. First of all, thanks for having me. Um, you know, obviously been you know West Side since I got this thing rolling. So, um, you know, right now we're in the in the thick of it. You know, we got Michaela Mayer. She's up here right now. She's training for her next fight. Uh, fight details should be announced pretty soon, but it's looking like it's going to be in April. Uh, so we got a good six you know six weeks more of her strength work before she heads back to Colorado for some of her you know conditioning and altitude work. So, um, you know, really excited about that. And then on top of that, we still got um, you know about eight more weeks, nine more weeks for our NFL Pro Day guys, um, they're getting ready for the biggest job interviews of their lives coming up here in March. Um, you know, it looks like we're probably going to get three of them over at Central Michigan University, um, you know, in the middle of March. So, um, you know, on top of that, uh, we're about ready to move into another facility. Uh, we just purchased a, a new property with um, about 5,000 more square feet. Um, so a lot more room um, to get things rolling and all of our high school and college athletes, too. So I'm pretty excited about where we're at right now and the direction of the gym. Well, to say um, you're not a busy man would be a lie. <laughs> yeah. um, before we get into where you started and then how you got into strength and conditioning, how are you finding the or what's it like to transition from training pro athletes in football to boxing? Yeah, it's pretty funny. Me and Michaela are actually talking about this morning, so. She's not like your prototypical, you know, boxer or fighter, right? If you take a look around at some of the stuff that you see on Instagram, right, and you see a lot of the fighters and, you know, all they're doing is basically strength endurance. You know what I mean? They're, all they're doing is just doing a ton of reps, very minimal rest, not really focusing on absolute strength gains. Um, that's one of the things that I really was excited about with Michaela from the jump is that she's never been afraid to put a barbell on her back. She's never been afraid to max out. Um, and, you know, that's some of the things that, you know, I really, um, I love about her training. So to say that football and boxing is so much different. Yeah, they are. They have completely different energy systems, but in the weight room, everything's so general that as long as we're fine tuning their absolute strength and we're fine tuning their explosive power, um, you know, there's a lot of similarities that people don't really realize. And then from there, their skill coaches kind of take it from there. So her, her skill coach, Coach Al, he's in charge of her conditioning. He's in charge of her sparring, her running, that type of thing. I'm just kind of in charge of making her, you know, a stronger, more explosive athlete, just like I do with our football guys. I mean, it's it's a it's a dream gig for a strength coach to actually your only job is to get her strong. <laughs> yeah, it's actually a lot of fun because that's that's probably one of the areas that she needs the most work on. So she recognizes that. So if we can get her a little bit stronger, 1%, 2%, She's gonna get in the ring, and she's gonna, you know, she's gonna feel that that more power. How did uh, how did that come about? How did you guys meet up? Uh, so, Northern Michigan University was uh, home to the USOEC Olympic Training Center uh, for boxing. It no longer is, but Coach Al Mitchell, um, he's he's the guru. He's basically um, the guy with boxing. You know what I mean? So. Michaela's been with him, I think, since she was 18 years old. And, you know, now she's, you know, been, I think, 12, 13 years with him. So, um, you know, she's getting to the point where she's coming up to Marquette for Coach Al, and she needed a strength conditioning coach, so a strength coach. So she ended up coming down to the advantage, and she tried to work out with me. 
long story short, she's been with me ever since. That was about five years ago. Well, that's a, quite a journey. She's had a she's had and having huge success in her career, and it's only great to see. And it's great to know when you know someone in the back end of a, a fighter because a fighter has a fight team, and when you get to to know the back end of stuff, it's really good to good to see. Um, For sure. What are some of the um, unforeseen things that you uh, experienced with training a fighter? Uh, you know, there's a lot of times they come in nicked up, you know what I mean? So I got an auto-regulator on the regular. So um, one of the things that I, I, I love and I rely heavily on is um, a lot of our, our lasers and our, um, you know, our purge system. So I'm, I'm sure you obviously you've heard of purge. It's a velocity time system where, you know, let's say she comes in and, she's hitting a uh, 50% of her one rep and she's not hitting the, the zones or the velocities that we really want to hit for, her. you know, we scale it back up or down based off how she's feeling that day. So uh, I rely heavily on that because she runs five, you know, two days a week, she spars three days a week. And she, um, in fact, she runs five days a week, spars three days a week and lifts three days a week. So, it, you know, for her, we got to really focus on making sure she's not getting overtrained while she's up here. Do you have, do you find yourself having to, explain to the athlete to take their foot off the gas because fighters just want to go, 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 go. All the time. You know, I think there's a, especially when she gets her, her film, like her, uh, her camera crew in there, you know I mean? She wants to just go, um, limited rest. You know, if we're doing dynamic day, great. I don't care. We got something on Friday where I try to kill her. You know what I mean? Like we got nine rounds, 10 rounds is what we call it. You know, she's doing some type of, um, you know, dynamic squat. She's doing a dynamic bench. She's doing some type of, um, you know, jump, try to sprint variation. And then, you know, we tie in a lot of her special exercises in there too, but it's very limited rest. And she only, she only gets 30 seconds basically between each round and she's just going for 10 of them. So it's a, it's a high, you know, high tempo day, but on the max effort days, she wants to, she wants to just get after it and get out of there. You know what I mean? I'm like, Michaela, we got to slow down. We got to really focus on getting this absolute strength built up. And we're not going to be able to do that if you only have 20, 30 seconds between each set. It's just not going to happen. So then she comes back and she's like, okay. And you know, it's just a, she, she's a fighter. Like you said, they want to, they want no rest. How do you approach fight camp compared to out of fight camp? Uh, so basically she comes up strictly for her fight camp. So I only get hands on when she's in fight camp, when she's out of fight camp, I give her a workout and she kind of does it on her own. Um, you know, but like I said, when she's, when she's kind of like in her off season, like she hasn't fought for this is going on. Let's see here it'll be about six months since her last fight. You know what I mean? So she takes some time off in between that uh, where she just kind of, you know, does her own thing. But once she's dialed into camp week, you know, I'm sorry, fight camp, then that's when we really focus on getting her stronger. But, um, you know, it, like you said, in, it's kind of like our in-season versus our off-season model, right? Um, you know, for our football guys, in-season, right, we scale back to training a little bit and we just kind of focus on, you know, picking our spots, trying to make sure we give a little bit of dose here, a little bit of dose there. Off-season, it's full go, right? Um, well, when she's in here in fight camp, it's kind of the opposite where it's full go during fight camp. Um, and then when she's out of here, it's when she kind of picks her spots and we just try to give her microdoses here and there because fight camp's it's hell for her. I mean, like I said, she's going nonstop all day. Um, how did you become a strength coach? Cause you were a stud athlete and then very rarely does an athlete transition into strength conditioning and go into the private sector and be as successful as you have been. So how did that transition occur? Yeah, I kind of remind, it, yeah, it takes me back to 2011, you know, when I went to my pro day and 
um, you know, I, I thought I did very well and I could get my, my 40 times back and my average was a four, six, two. And obviously being a wide receiver coming from division two football school, um, you know, that's not going to get it done. So um, it was kind of one of those things where it's either a get a nine to five or B continue doing something that I love to do and maybe help somebody get to where I wasn't able to get to. Um, so that was kind of my passion and my why, and that kind of drove me. Right. So I didn't really have a plan B. And when the opportunity came to, to buy advantage, I, I jumped on it. And um, it was kind of one of those things where I'm still not stopped learning. You know what I mean? I'm still continually trying to learn. I think that's the biggest part about it is that I don't think I know everything about training and I don't think I ever will. Um, and I kind of, I just rely heavily on our results and relation based um, with our athletes. And I think that's kind of what's gotten me to this point today because throughout the years, I mean, there's been times where, you know, times have been tough. You know what I mean? Like we haven't had a lot of athletes for, you know, the small, the early years. And now it's getting to the point where that hard work early on and that dedication and those relationships that we built on and just staying true to who we are. I think that's really helped kind of catapult us to where we're at today. Um, initially, I relied heavily on, on the part where, you know, I was a former athlete going through it. So I got a lot of football kids that, you know, looked up to me in the area. Um, you know, I was an athlete that went through it went through it the wrong way training wise. And I found out the right way through Louie and Westside and you guys. And I was able to kind of bring that to an area that was really, was really craving something like that. And I think I hit it at the right time. Um, and like I said, the results that we were able to get these athletes early on kind of catapulted us to where we're at today. Can you give us a, an overview of your journey from 2011 to where you are now? Yeah. Uh, 2011, like I said, that was the, the year of my pro day. Um, you know, I was training high school athletes on the side. Um, and then once my, once I finally hung the cleats up, that was back in 2020, I'm sorry, 2013. And that's when we were training Zach and Jace, uh, Zach Anderson and Jace Daniels for their pro day. So those are some young guys that I played with at Northern, um, that took a shot on me, you know, a guy that never had a pro day group before. Um, and I remember calling Louie just nonstop, like, Hey Lou, what should I put in for this? Hey Lou, what should I put for that? And it, the funny part about it was, I called DeFranco. I called Bomberitos. You know, these are the top, you know, these are some of the top at the time performance facilities for NFL Pro Day guys. No one picked the phone up. And the funny part is Bomberitos always, re you know, he always references Louis. DeFranco's always references Louis. And guess who picks the phone up? Louis Simmons. You know what I mean? So I was able to kind of get to the, the main source, so to speak. And like I said, it was something where we just continually talked. Um, anytime I called, you pick up. I'm sure he got annoyed of it, but he didn't show it. That's for sure. Um, and it was kind of cool because we were able to have our first pro day group. Zach got to put on a, a jersey with the Browns, and uh, Jace got to put on a, a jersey with the Tampa Bay Bucks. Um, and that was unheard of up here. You know what I mean? Not only that, but we're in a small community. We're we're considered Upers. That's what we call ourselves, right? Up the peninsula of Michigan, we're Upers, right? And these two guys are from the UP, very small area, and they went from playing at Northern. Were Upers. I was able to train them, and they got to put on an NFL jersey. And both of them stayed in the CFL for a couple of years and had had a heck of a career. Um, but that being said, with the product that Louis helped me put out with that system, all right, with the conjugate system, these guys went on and just crushed their pro days. Jace was over 300 pounds. He ran a sub 540, jumped 30 inches. Uh, Zach was 258 pounds. He ran a 458 and he jumped 38 inches. Like unheard of numbers. You know what I mean? And these guys, the first time they got introduced to conjugate, and I know that for a fact because I was playing with them at Northern, so I know they're doing Olympic-style lifting prior to, 
now they come to and they do a um, you know a conjugate style base system, and their deadlifts went through the roof. I mean, Zach was doing 765, Jace was doing 585. Their squats went through the roof. Zach was doing like 700 plus. Jace was doing uh, you know 550 plus. And obviously their bench reps and think Zach ended up hitting like 35 reps and Jace, you know, coming off a pec strain was able to still hit 18. So, um, you know, the strength numbers went through the roof, their jumps went through the roof. And at that time I knew I'm like, we're onto something because these people are really bought into the competition that comes from conjugate where every week we're trying to set a new PR, whether it's squat, bench, dead, or a variation of it, or a jump or a sprint variation. Um, you know, at the early time, like I told you, we used to run these guys 40 yard dash right away. And that's something I've gotten completely away from because I don't want to hurt these kids coming off the season where they haven't ran a 40 and their body's not ready for it. So we've gotten a lot smarter with the way that we've used conjugate from day one until now. Um, so that's something I'm really proud of, but you know, from 2013, that was kind of the thing that really catapulted us to being like the area leaders in strength conditioning and the area leaders in, you know, if you want to get it to the next level, whether that's the college ranks going to the NFL or college ranks going to the NHL, I had two NHL guys at the same time. So it was kind of like really big, like this area had seen something like that before. You know what I mean? Um, so, you know, everybody had their, their why, right? They wanted to go from middle school to high school, you know, varsity, whatever it was. And that was something that we kind of hung our hat on is trying to get that athlete to the next level. So 2013 catapulted that. It was every year after that, literally every year um, up until now. We've had one at, one athlete minimum get into an NFL camp, whether it's a rookie mini camp or actual training camp. Um, and then in, 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 the, in the same process, we were able to get Michaela Mayer up here, um, obviously a world champion boxer, um, Nick Baumgartner, Olympic gold medalist snowboarder. Um, you know, we got a couple more pro boxers in that time period as well. Um, you know, obviously high school state champions, um, you know, couple guys that are coming back for um, in between their NFL seasons, um, season vets, you know, it's kind of been crazy. You know, you got, you, you end up getting agents ended up, you know, they're paying for these athletes to train with us. So it's, it's come a long way to where it's at all at the same time of, you know, building an adult group as well, who are blue collar adults, you know, they like to get after it and lift heavy as well. And everything is conjugate based. You know what I mean? Even with our adults. How do you find the time to handle all this? That would not be possible without my coaching staff. You know what I mean? So um, early on, right, there's a lot of sacrifice. There's a lot of lot of uh, long hours. There's a lot of missed holidays. It was a lot of missed a lot of things. You know what I mean? There's a lot of sacrifices early on that people don't really see. What they see now is an overnight success that is not an overnight success. Yeah. You know what I mean? As you know. You know what I mean? It's something that's been, you know, something that you paved the way for a long period of time to get to kind of where you're at right now. So, um you know, it's kind of uh, something I don't like to really look back too much on because I don't want to get complacent. I always want to keep going, moving forward. Um, but I wouldn't be able to do that without my staff. You know, I got two guys right here with me that I know will go through a brick wall for me, and I would do the same for them. And then in our second location, you know, hour and a half north, I got another kid that's gonna, that, you know, he'd go, he'd go through a brick wall for me as well. So, um, you know, these guys, the cool part about it is they all were trained by me growing up eighth grade all the way through high school for some of them you know what i mean so they they understand that all they've ever known is conjugate <laughs> you know what i mean so i don't i didn't have to go through it and be like hey guys like this olympic style or you know the block periodization like we got to stay away from that like they just knew you know what i mean like they know like this is the right way to train and they had zero bad habits 
You know what I mean? So it's kind of cool to to do that. To, I, I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing right now if I didn't have coaching staff. Um, what are some of the uh, the biggest failures you've learned from between business and strength conditioning up to now? Um, business wise, I mean, just taking on everything, right? You want to be a you want to cater to everybody because you know you want them to feel that success. You want them to feel like the way you feel about your style of training. You know what I mean? Yeah. And early on, I used to take it, you know, personal if somebody would go to a different gym, you know, and I'd be like, man, why are they going there instead of training here? Like, I just don't get it. Like the results speak for themselves. But as I've gotten older and more mature, I'm just like, it's kind of a good thing, right? We can't cater to everybody. So that's one thing that, you know, early on, I used to really focus on the kids that we didn't have or the people we didn't have in the gym instead of the people that we do have in the gym. And now we've gotten to the point where like, I don't care if somebody's training somewhere else. The kids that we have here and now, I'm going to make sure that they get the best training product that they can. Um, you know, and then on the flip side of that with the training modalities, um, you know, early on, I would kind of, you know, go back and forth with, man, should we incorporate cleans or should we incorporate something just so that we would get some, you know, get that, that type of uh, clientele in, right. Try to cater to what they want. And, you know, early on, I, I did that for a little bit. And then eventually I'm just like, you know what, forget that. We're going to do what we do and we're going to be very unique to it. And, you know, instead of the, the barbell cleans, we're going to do a med bell throw variation or a box jump variation. You know what I mean? Like that's what we're going to do. And we're going to hang our hat on that and be very unique to that. Do you think that decision you made there is a very hard one for many coaches to make? Yeah. I mean, it, I can feel the, the stress and the, um, you know, I can feel it because when I was at the college sector, right, um, I had a lot of coaches early on when I was uh, a younger coach, you know, coaching, you know, D1 hockey, you know what I mean? And when I went into a Division One hockey program at 25 years old, they were like, this is completely brand new. We're not cleaning. We're not going on. To the, we're not going on these slide boards. <laughs> you know, we're not doing any of these things. And the, the coach at the time was like, he, he believed in me because two of his athletes, one ended up going to the Boston Bruins and the other one went to the Colorado Avalanche. And those are the guys that trained with me um, in this unique style of training. You know what I mean? Um, but early on, it was very hard for me to tell a division one hockey coach, no coach, we're not going to be doing this. We're going to do it this way instead. Um, so I can, I, I felt that. So as a, as a young coach out there, you know, stick to what you do, um, be very confident in what you do and kind of stick to your guns in this sort of speak. I mean, don't, don't, you know, don't be so naive to the fact that you can't implement something here and there to kind of keep somebody else happy, but um, just make sure it falls, you know, it falls in suit with what you do. What's your take on the importance of cleans, especially in older systems of training? Because there still seems to be a, a death grip like on we still must do cleans, we still must do snatches. For someone who's come through it as an athlete and in it as a coach, why is that still there, do you think? To be honest with you, I think it's just uh, it's something that we've always done sort of thing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, we've always done this. Or, you know, Nebraska football does this. Or LSU football did this and they run a national championship. Well, no, they won a national championship because their athletes are unbelievable. Like, they can do CrossFit and they can still win a national championship. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, no hate to cross it, but for athletes, it's a little different, right? So um, I just – I don't want to be married to a movement, right? I want to be married to the intent. That's kind of what I hang my hat on. So I don't care what the movement is. I mean, you could do a clean, 
know, if you want to hit your 0.7 meters per second, you want to hit that type of velocity zone, right? Go ahead, do it, right? It still falls in line with, our, you know, our dynamic days. But for me, if I'm a team sport athlete, Olympic lifting is a sport in and of itself. And if an athlete doesn't have proficient form in it, they're not going to be able to move the bar fast anyway. It doesn't matter how much weight's on there. So now they're in a zone of like, it's not heavy enough to produce force and it's too light where, you know, you're basically stalling yourself, right? You're not getting anywhere with it. So um, on top of that, the injury rate of cleaning is far more superior than, um, you know, doing a weighted med ball jump. You know what I mean? Uh, Our athletes know how to jump. That's what they know how to do. They don't know how to clean. So if you're, you're rhyming raising this triple extension, well, we can get triple extension a different way. You know what I mean? So, you know, the wrists, the elbows, the knees, I mean, those things are just, it doesn't make sense to me, to be honest with you, because it's just, they're going through doing a movement because that's what they think the only way to create triple extension is. You kind of touched on it a little bit, but how has the uh, industry changed, evolved, maybe in some instances went backwards over the last, we'll just say eight to 10 years. To be honest with you, I think um, one thing that was really stuck with me is, is Louis always said strength is measured in speeds and something about that resonated with me when I started to see all these velocity based training modalities coming through before it was so hard because they're so expensive. Right. Um, I mean, they still are expensive. Don't get me wrong. Purchase a very superior product but you're going to pay for it. You know what I mean? Um, so what I've seen is we've gotten very smart with the way that we're using, utilizing technology. I think technology has been a very good thing and a very bad thing because you can kind of get bogged down with it too, because if the technology kind of screws up in a large group setting, you're kind of screwed. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's happened before as well. But if you can kind of hit it right and just kind of focus on a couple of things, the technology has been very superior in the last eight to, eight to 10 years, I think. Um, you know, I think when in, in this industry, you're going to see a lot of, um, fitness-based athletes that, you know, post something on Instagram that looks really cool. Um, and these younger kids will see it and they think that they got to look or, or, or do something that they're doing in order for them to be successful at their sport or their, or their lifting career. Um, you know, so I think that social media has also done something where it's been a disservice as well in the last eight to 10 years. So, um, you know, I think a couple of things, technology has been great and it can be bad and social media as well. Do you use technology as a guide, a reference point, or does it actually dictate how you train? Uh, with some or more elite athletes, it dictates the way I train. Um, you know, with Michaela, like I said, if she comes in and I see that she's kind of bogged down a little bit and her speed of the barbell movement isn't where it needs to be, I ought to regulate that and I shut her down. You know what I mean? Um, just because I want to make sure she's, an undertrained athlete is going to be more explosive than an overtrained athlete. So, um, especially during fight camp, I want to make sure that she's feeling good going into sparring and everything like that. So, um, I use the technology to kind of, you know, guide me with her. Um, you know, some of our, our advanced college kids as well. Um, but you know, from our younger kids, um, you know, some of them can kind of pick up on that. And I'm not saying that they cut themselves short, but let's say the goal is to hit 0.7 and they're tired. They might not give their best effort because they know if they don't hit it, I'm going to drop the weight for them. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I I, I got I to be a coach in that situation and kind of know each athlete. So each just each each circumstance is going to be a little bit different, but for the most part, I'm going to let it guide most of our, our our higher echelon athletes, and I'm going to be the coach for the younger ones and make sure I can kind of get a workout done with them no matter what. Are you uh, an early adopter of technology, or were you cautious about it at the start? 
real cautious. Um, I'm all about efficiency. And if something slows me down, I get anxiety. I, I, I can't I can't handle it because I feel like if we're not moving um, and I have a large group, especially when, you know, you got a college coach breathing down your neck, if he's taking a look and seeing, you know, 40, 50 guys with their arms crossed, you know, he's not thinking, oh, they're resting for their absolute strength. He's thinking we're not getting shit done. You know what I mean? So, um, you know, I like to keep things moving. And technology at first was a scare of mine because, like I said, if it doesn't, like we had earlier, if the Wi-Fi is not working, right, you got to shut it down and do something different, right? So, um, you know, I was very skeptical at first with it, um, you know, even with our laser systems. I ended up having to get the Zybeck laser system that the NFL has um, just because that's what they use. And there's certain things you can't do with it that bog you down with larger group settings, but it's kind of a necessary evil. You know, I got to have it too. To kind of go down a tangent on the larger settings, um, you're still working in the collegiate sector too, right? With uh, universities? Yeah, yeah. We're still the head strength coach for Finland University. So I have 11 sports there. So how do you balance that? not in terms of the relationship of everything you've got going on, which is crazy. But for instance, when you're in the private sector, you're so used to dealing with individuals or small groups that you forget what a pleasure it is and how easy it is to program for smaller amounts of um, athletes. Then you go to the collegiate sector. And from my perspective, looking in and talking with coaches, it seems that the job of a strength coach kind of comes down a level and then you move towards becoming a logistics manager first and foremost. And then you have all the red tape and then strength and conditioning is down here because there's no other way to deal with it. How have right. you dealt with that and have you come up with anything that um, people can learn from? Yeah, so I mean, basically... I've dealt with that quite a bit at this last university. Um, and it got to the point where it was just much easier to train those athletes at my facility, because like I said, we had the technology, we had the specialty bars, we had the chains, we had the bands. Right. So logistically I knew we could get stuff done the way we needed to, because one number two, we also had the staff for it as well. Um, I wasn't able to bring my staff over there because of the time purposes and everything like that, like they couldn't be away from the gym. Once I got them here, logistically, it worked out so much better because I could have half the group on an upper body, on an upper body, lower body wave, the other group on a lower body, upper body wave. So I was able to kind of um, do an unconventional model with that. But what it was allowing me to do was train more athletes at once um, while utilizing, you know, the four bench racks that we had and the four squat racks that we had. So you had to get very creative. And that's the coolest part about conjugate is that it's not cookie cutter. You can kind of create it the way however you wanted to, you know what I mean? Um, you know, so I, I got away from the administration. I got away from, um, you know, the stuff that was kind of slowing me down at the university and I was able to kind of get it back to the, basically bring a collegiate sector to the private sector. You know, I got to bring them to my home base and I was able to create everything we wanted to do during the season. And it was kind of cool because you got to see throughout the course of the year where, you know, we would usually flatline and kind of taper off and get a little bit weaker throughout the year. This year, we didn't get any weaker, not not an ounce weaker. We actually ended up getting stronger across the board. Um, and I think a, a large portion of that was we trained really hard, actually, in season this year with this football team. Um, so, you know, logistically, you know, it worked out a lot better. 
and we were able to get away from all that administration. We were able to get away from all those loopholes, um, and we were able to get them at my home turf, and we were able to kind of get the job done we wanted to. Do you potentially think, because the conjugate method is non-cookie-cutter-esque, that allows you to pull from so many systems, that that in itself can paralyze some coaches because you have too much choice and that reverting back to linear is such an easy option because it's what you know. And I think as people in general, like linear is so much easier to digest mentally. It's less chaotic. It reduces anxiety, but the results just don't seem to be there. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I think yes and no to that. I think yes, just because if they were to do it, they just don't know the system well enough to, you know, come up with a workout. There's going to be times where you have young coaches out there. I'm telling you right now, when you're in the collegiate sector, nothing is going to go. I mean, collegiate or private, nothing is going to go according to what you want done unless you're training one-on-one. I'm telling you that right now. So you better be able to adapt on the fly. There was times where I got to the weight room and the coach was saying, we don't have this available today. Come up with a a program. If you can't do that, like if you're doing a linear periodization model, you're screwed. You know what I mean? Now, when you have conjugate, there's a million different things that you can do. Um, you know, whether it's, you know, a heavy sled drag variation, um, whether that's, you know, instead of your squatting, if the, if the weight room for us, the weight room sometimes wasn't available. So that's another reason why we had to bring it to my home, home turf. But, um, you know, the conjugate style, yes, can be very paralyzing for coaches that don't understand it. And they, like you said, they could have, they could do box squat. They can do um, free squat. They can do, uh, you know, chains, bands. They can, I mean, a million different variations, right? Um, just early on, I think that the biggest advice I could give somebody is stick to something that is very simple. Like I said before, we didn't have bands and chains early on. We didn't have the camber bar. We didn't have the bow bar. We didn't have the yoke bars. We didn't have any of those things early on. And we were still able to create a, a new stimulus each week if we wanted to based off of what we, we had available. So, Stick to the conjugate system and just really focus on something small, incremental jumps. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, um, what's the most amount of athletes you've trained at one time in one session? Well, I mean, probably 55 plus, 55. How many coaches would you have with you doing that? Just me and another coach. <laughs> how, how did you deal with that logistically? Uh, so logistically, I had them on my tempo. So <clears throat> everything was on me. So I'll say, ready, set, I say down. And then they go down, come back up, they rack the weights. You know what I mean? So I'm watching as they go. So whether it's squatting, I had them all having side spots, back spots, um, making sure that everything, like I said, was in that 15-minute time frame because I cap it for them. Um, but by having them all go at the same time, you know, just with the cadence, it was a lot easier for them. Um, you know, if we're doing some type of sprint variation with load velocity profiling, I had them waterfalling. So a waterfall is typically just, you know, one athlete going. Once their sled gets past their, the foot of the other athlete, they go. So that way I can watch the start of every one of the athletes, you know, five, six of them at a time. And if they're fall stepping or if they're not, you know, dorsiflexing or if they're not driving out with their hips, I'm able to see that right away. Um, so, you know, if we're doing special exercises, same thing. If it's a cadence, I'll have an athlete be a team captain. And what they'll end up doing is saying, all right, ready, on me, down, one, two, three, up, one. And then everybody's counting, right? So it creates a cool environment where everybody's doing it together. And it's creating a cool environment where, you know, nobody's kind of getting left behind, you know? So that's kind of the cool thing that I think the coaches loved about it is that 
it was structured, but then it was, you know, an organized chaos type of thing. You know what I mean? It wasn't like very militant, like you know, you're typical seeing in the collegiate sector, like very militant. Um, you know, there's a free flow to it, but there's also organization. Did it help create a stronger culture with everybody? Yeah, I think the buy-in was, was there for sure, without a doubt. Um, you know, especially... I mean, I remember doing this during COVID. Uh, we had to have six different groups of 15, and it was just like, man, it was terrible. It was absolutely terrible, like going through the same workout with each one of the groups because it wasn't like we could switch up and do skills at this time, hybrids at this time, bigs at this time. It went off class schedules, yeah. and that's how they got assigned. So, yeah, like we like to do special exercises with our athletes and switch them up a little bit based off their needs and their weak points. Um but I guess the cool part about it was that most of the guys had the same weak points, so to speak. You know what I mean? Like, you don't got to get too creative with that um, in a large team sport athlete. Um, you know, we, we focused a ton on the posterior chain because a lot of the kids that I was getting before were all Olympic-based athletes to start, you know. So their post chain was very weak. So I was able to kind of get that hammered out um, all at the same time. But, um, you know, the buy-in during COVID is very hard because it was very monotonous. But once you got two groups going together – Man, I'm telling you right now, that was an electric atmosphere. When you're dealing with such large numbers, are you as a strength coach thinking about maximum return for the greater good of the group compared to working with an athlete and you're getting into the minutia of what needs to be done? Or are you still trying to do that with a group? I try to do that with a group. I try to. Um, you know, obviously there's things that come into play, time, um, you know, basically resources, you know, those sorts of things were kind of bottlenecking me when I was at the university. Um, but, you know, once you got here, I was able to switch it up where, okay, quarterbacks, you're going to grab the football bar today or the bamboo bar today, and you're going to bench with that. Uh, when you're squatting, you're going to grab the yoke bar or you're going to grab the camber bar or you're going to grab, you know, something that you're getting out of the external rotation. You know, uh, bigs, you know, we're going to get you guys, your knees are bugging you, we're going to get you on the belt squat machine, we're going to get you on the inverse curl machines, right? So, like, I was able to kind of create a um, – it got to the point where we could very, we could specialize very, very easily with them because we had the resources available for them. Um, you know, with, with athletes, when you go to the, the university, I mean, the one that we have, we don't have a, a belt squat machine. We don't have reverse hypers. We don't have bamboo bars. We don't have camber bars, right? So it was hard for me to specialize. Not saying you need everything like that to specialize, but yeah. um, you, have you ever seen a 300-pound offensive lineman be able to do a glute ham raise without their body weight? It doesn't happen very often. So the inverse curl machine is going to be something that you need, you know what I mean, mm -hmm. in order for them to get what, you know, what you're trying to achieve done. Did you group people by strength levels, by positions, by friendships? How did you uh, put people in groups? Early on, it was based off of, like, they kind of knew who they should be in the groups with. And then sometimes you get a kid that just was in there with their buddies and they're slowing the group down. You say, get your ass down the rack three. You're not strong enough for rack one. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that got to the point where everybody wanted to get into rack one, and it created that competition. So I'm saying, hey, you got to bring it today. If you don't bring it today, you're out of rack one. You're getting bumped down a rack. And that brought competition to that to the weight room environment. Do you have a demographic that you like to work with now that you never thought you would? Female athletes. I, I, I never thought in a million years that I would, um, you know, want to train more and more female athletes. But obviously having three daughters of my own, I got to learn how to train female athletes eventually. So why not now? Right. But 
you know, I say that half joking, but, you know, I'm telling you right now, female athletes, you tell them to do something, they're going to do it right now. They're going to do it. And they're going to, they're going to do exactly the way that you tell them to do it. They're not going to talk back. They're going to just work their, their tail off. And you obviously you get male athletes that do the same thing, but by and large, the female athlete, I was not surprised. I'm very surprised that that was a clientele that I, I, I actually have craving to train. What I have found is that naturally they seem to acquire skill proficiency much, much faster. For sure. Yeah, they definitely learn. I mean, I think they definitely learn a little bit faster for sure. Um, in working with all the demographics, I have made transitions back to high school kids of where you kind of progress from high school, you go all the way up to pros. And during my journey, I found that high school kids are the most valuable, important demographic to work with. Through your experience, have you felt something like that? Have you seen that to where you work with a pro who maybe had a, a poor collegiate college is so hard, in my opinion, for athletes to grow. There's so much going on between on and off the field they have to do. So it's very hard to make a lot of progress. The people who are genetically more inclined will get better regardless. Right. But, so that high school prepares basically how good you're going to be. But then you get to the pro level and you see some pros who have just, they don't have fundamentals. They have genetic factors out the wazoo. And everything always leads back to, well, if you had this in high school, it would carry over so much more to you as a pro. Um, have you found similar things? And if not, or if so, can you share? No, I agree 100 percent with that. There's, I mean, we get some kids that come up here that are already at the highest level, you know. And and you look at them, I'm like, oh my god, if if you would have had this in high school, like they even say it, right? Um, so so now we're it's getting to the point where these high school kids that we have, they're recognizing that. And to get back to what I was just touching on, I have a female athlete right now that, I mean, if, if there was 20 days in the week, she would come every day. You know what I mean? Like she's just that, that in tune with training. And um, I think she's understanding that if she can do this now, her goals of playing at the college level, like it's going to only increase those odds at playing at the college level. You know what I mean? Um, so, you know, for, for me, I, I definitely see, um, you know, a trickle over effect early on people are just like, I'm just going to rely on my athleticism and I'm, I'm a good enough athlete. Right. Especially with basketball players. I'm not sure if you've seen that with basketball players, but they think that if they're going to lift, you know, we're getting rid of that stigma up here. Um, if you're lift, you're not going to get big and bulky, right? Like you're not going to just lose your jump shot. I mean, have you seen LeBron or have you seen Steph Curry? I mean, Steph Curry, when he first got in the league, he was a twig. Now he's, he's actually looking pretty decent for like a, a basketball player. Like he got a lot stronger and he's still shooting the hell out of the ball. So, um, you know, these kids are seeing that if they continue to train early on, um, that it's going to have trickle over effect and it's going to help them get to that next level a lot faster. Yeah, what uh, we've seen and what we are seeing is the younger we start them with the system of training, one, they're actually beginning to learn how to set goals accurately because when it comes to max effort day, you want to achieve a record. Our goal is to have a positive environment. So we actually become less ambitious to become more optimal instead of a 50 pound PR you're chasing that five pound PR and at a high school level that's teaching goal setting it's also given them bigger access to acquire more skill which has been a pleasant uh, surprise in working with coaches and uh, high school kids like okay there's a there's a lot of untapped potential 
within these kids that colleges would oversee. And now they're realizing and parents are realizing, oh, it's really to invest in our kids right now is a huge, huge deal. And even if they don't make it as a collegiate athletes, they still have so much um, life skills. Life skills, exactly. And they add so much to the weight room. So like, mm-hmm. everyone has a purpose. So if you're a starter, non-starter, everyone has a purpose, just like you had your racks, right? I'd imagine someone who came all the way from your last rack to your first rack, that would uh, get people chirping pretty good. No, absolutely. And to kind of touch on your point, too, as some of these younger athletes, I mean, you know, showing them those successes is huge. But honestly, you know, showing them failures, too, in a safe environment, honestly, I think might speak a little bit more volumes for them as well. Because, you know, let's say they didn't hit their max, you know, it teaches them. So you can do one of two things. You can quit or you can just try to break through it and try to, you know, shatter that by 20 pounds next time. You know, I mean, it's one or two things. And, you know, a lot of the kids, like, they show a lot of resolve and they're going to come through the next time and they're going to blast it. And what that shows them is that you don't give up. You know what I mean? Like there's going to be times in your life where you're going to get beat down. And that's the cool part about the weight room. 45 pounds is always going to be 45 pounds. You know what I mean? For sure. Get in there, get in there and, and lift it. How do you approach problems, um, especially with pro athletes? And I don't mean personal problems. I mean, athletic problems. Do you have a particular process when you talk with an athlete trying to break down the information to understand what you're going to do next? Do you kind of mean like in a, in a physical setting, like physical problems? Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of times where we do a lot of load velocity profiling with some of our guys, um, whether that's sled sprinting with a hundred pounds of their body weight on and I time it with our lasers, 50%, 25% unweighted. Um, you know, we do that with a lot of our, our pro guys. Right. But if you do that with a kid, what's he going to tell you? They're weak. Of course they're weak. You know what I mean? Like 95% of the kids that we come in contact with need to get stronger. That's why I love conjugate because, you know, we're trying to get kids stronger. Um, but when you start dealing with that upper echelon of that 1%, right, those one percenters, there's certain things that they might need more acceleration or they might need to get into, uh, you know, gear one a little bit quicker or gear two a little bit quicker, right? So there's certain things that we do with our, our higher echelon kids um, that, you know, we can fine tune a little bit, a little bit easier. So, we load velocity profile a lot of our athletes. We also do, you know, max effort, whether it's a point three or lower on our velocity days for our absolute strength. Um, you know, we try to hit a, a, a one rep at point three meters per second. And then when we retest them later on, we see how fast they can move it. So let's say somebody comes in and hits a four oh five for a point three. All right. The next time we come and test, I want to see what they hit four oh five for. If they hit it for point six, we know that they got a lot stronger, you know what I mean, without having to put more weight on their back right before they leave for the NFL season. Um, you know, so those are some things that we kind of do, um, for, you know, for a high school kid, we'll just let them, you know, really test out, you know. As a strength coach, what do you think would help us evolve more? Um, I think there's gotta be a better communication channel between the strength coach the athletic trainers, the sport coach, physical trainers, I'm sorry, the physical therapists, and then the athletes. There's got to be a better communication because sometimes what I see is, um, and it goes it goes every which way, right? You have some strength coaches that are so egotistical that they just want it to be their way and they don't care about the athletic trainer, they don't care about the, you know, the physical therapist, they don't care about the team doctor, they don't care about the athlete, right? But I see a lot of times where, um, you know, athletic trainers and physical therapists, they end up feeling like the strength coach is trying to get into their realm, right? 
And I think if there's that communication dialogue, you kind of see that the strength coach is just wanting the best for the athlete. You know what I mean? So I think in order for the, the next step for strength conditioning to get to the next level is I think all of those um, professionals need to be on the same, same, same page. What's communication like with you and your peers? Do you have many strength coaches checking in and out with you, sharing information? Or do you feel like you're out in a little island away from everybody? Um, most recently, I've been, you know, talking to a lot of other strength coaches in the private sector. Um, the collegiate sector, I think, is, I think everybody's kind of out for themselves, to be honest with you. The collegiate sector is a little bit different. Um, private, I talk to a ton of private strength coaches. I mean, I'm in a mastermind group with, you know, over 20 different, you know, private sector coaches. Um, and we're bouncing ideas off, you know, every single week. So, um, you know, the college, I think, is a little bit more uh, territorial because, let's be honest, you know, in five years, if they've gone. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough, tough job. It's tough uh, in terms of security of work. You don't know where you're going to be. You don't know where your family's going to be. We've had coaches here who've moved five or six times in 10 years. It's a, it's, it's a tough gig, and it's – Sadly, a lot of the time, it's not dependent on your skill set. There's some not at all. phenomenal head strength coaches that don't have jobs. And it comes down to the actual head coach of the football team or whatever the sport is. So it's, um, yeah, I don't envy their position at all. I give them a lot of credit for the amount of red tape they have to put up with. Um, back to your mastermind group, how important is that for your um, development as a coach to have other coaches to bounce stuff off? I mean... Mostly business-wise, it's it's um, it's changed the complexion of the game for me. It's a, it's a more of a business mastermind group, but there is stuff where you know we do bounce stuff off training-wise. Um, it's been huge for me because it you know I'm a football guy at heart, right? And there's there's coaches in there that are training, you know, the, the top 25 NBA players in, in the world. You know what I mean? So um, you, you find out ways to train basketball players a little bit differently than you thought you would, or you, you end up trying to you know train. Um, the 40 yards start a little bit different than you thought you would. Right. So um, it opens things up. I don't say it necessarily changes who I am as a coach, but it definitely makes me think about different things in a different way. Is there one sport that surprised you at the complex, the complexity of training and skill required? Hockey without a doubt. Um, that's a, it's a very fun sport to train. Um, a lot of those athletes are very, very skilled. I mean, if you ever tried putting on uh, some skates, it's pretty funny to see. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I ended up doing that when I was with those guys and I did not feel like an athlete, put it that way. So um, that's a very, very skilled sport, but it's also one of those sports that you better be strong and tough. Otherwise you're going to get exposed very quickly. How do you program for hockey? It amazes me um, when you go watch this live, like most sports, you watch it on TV, you think one thing, but when you go see it live, just like any pro day, from the NFL changed my mind. You go see a game from the sideline. You're like, this is when you hear the impact. Yeah. You're like, this is a whole different ball game. When I go watch the Blue Jackets play, first of all, I can't believe how graceful they are on skates. And then you realize the person attached to skates wants to kick your ass. <laughs> yeah. That just blew my mind of how athletic they are how fast the game is, that the skill, it goes so fast, it's hard to comprehend as you keep going and going to games. As a strength coach, how do you approach that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's one of those things where those kids are playing nonstop. 
right? And and that's one thing we try to tell a lot of our youth kids is like you got to have a downtime. I understand that you want to get recruited early on because hockey is one of those things where you get early, you get recruited early on, and if you don't, you kind of get lost in the mix, right? So you know, a lot of times you end up seeing a lot of kids with overly developed vastus lateralis versus a vastus medialis because they're always in that skate motion, right? So we try to make sure that we get that muscle imbalance to be a little bit, you know, get them caught up, you know, as best we can in that time if we can. Um, you know, on top of that, right, they always want to go, 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 similar to a fighter because they think I'm on the ice for 50 to 60-second shift. I need to have incredible work capacity. Okay, well, cool, but we still got to increase our strength. So, you know, we, we, we try to we, – we don't try to um, do their sport in the weight room. You know, we, we try to just be very general with all of our athletes. And what we when, when we get to conditioning of them, that's when we make it very specific. Is that the trick? to keep the weight room as general as possible and avoid sport-specific movements? I mean, I don't know if that's the trick, but that's something that we've been following and it's been working out pretty well for us, you know what I mean? So, um, you know, you see a lot of a lot of hockey coaches put their kids on bozu balls and have them do their slide boards. And like I said, they're just basically doing the same movement they're doing on the ice, you know what I mean? Um, so they're working on their strong points. When do they ever have a chance to work on their weak points? That's the biggest thing. I don't care if you're playing basketball or badminton, right? Yeah. If you're not working on your weak point, you're going to just be, eventually get to a point where you're going to plateau. Yeah, that's um, – you, you said it at the start, is when you approach exercise selection as an tool or for the intent of what to achieve, I think it opens up a lot more for you in the weight room. When you get locked into this is your exercises and that is it, I can understand why you would want to do it because it becomes very efficient in terms of just running people through. You set up your weight room based on your exercises. You start here, finish there, and you're done. Mm -hmm. But if you eliminate exercises of being the be-all and end-all and just the intent of the muscle group you're trying to focus on, I think keeping things general is the way to go and uh, uh, Dan DePasqua always said it's uh, uh, groove training you try to avoid the groove and by doing that you're going to make a way better athlete regardless of what you do right um, do you keep up on your credentials yeah um, you know being in the collegiate sector you know you have to end up you had to, to jump through that CSCS hoop a long time ago and I've been able to maintain that throughout. Um, you know, I also have, you know, uh, taking Les Bellman. He's a he's basically a combine guru um, for speed training. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm diving in right now to Brian Mann. He's got his velocity-based training. Mm-hmm. Um, got to get that certification. I just got to take it. Obviously, you know, with you guys, I have the you know special strengths and then um, performance enhancement specialists. You know, I have about eight or nine. I, you know, Joel Jameson's conditioning. You know, I have a, a ton of different ones. It's just you know, I, I don't really like to – I'm not a credential guy. I'm more of a, a learn-under-the-bar kind of guy, mm-hmm. and that's kind of what's guided me throughout my years as a strength coach. Um, you know, I do think that you still have to have – obviously, you still got to be in the books, right? That's one thing Louie always talked about is if you're not reading something, um, you know, you're, you're not learning. You know what I mean? So you got to get in there and you got you to gotta read. Um, you know, taking these, these exams and these credentials is just kind of – something that you got to jump through in this, in this profession because people see that and they're like, oh, he's got these XYZ credentials. He must know what he's talking about. You know what I mean? But I know a lot of really smart people that have a ton of credentials that are very shitty coaches. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Opposite. Yeah. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong with the way I think on this is that 
we've always said the conjugate method is our way. It's not the way. I don't think there is any the way of training, but it gives you an adaptable system to learn everything else with. So when you're doing all the courses you've just done, you're able to pick out the best parts of it and blend it into your own system. And from the questions we get and from people coming here, I think that's one thing people forget is don't close yourself off. You have to look, even if you go to a seminar or you go through an education system and it's terrible, well, now you've known I'm not going to do that. So you're going to save time later on. Um, is that how you approach training to keep, to keep learning? Absolutely. So, I mean, we, 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 we follow, uh, you know, we have eight phases in our training program, right? So each, each workout you come into, whether it's max effort dynamic, we try to have eight phases. Um, that's something that, you know, I've taken from Joe DeFranco. Uh, where, you know, phase one is that pre-movement preparation. So the athletes come in and, you know, instead of just doing a typical foam roller and lacrosse balls, now I stole from Donnie Thompson and we were able to put, you know, body tempering in there. You know what I mean? Um, you know, phase two would be CNS activation. Um, you know, that's any type of sprinting or jump variation. That's going to be our clean variation, right? So any type of triple extension or anything to excite the central nervous system, that's not going to take away from our main lift. That's what we're going to do. Uh, you know, phase three is going to be our main lift. So if we're trying to increase our absolute strength, that's going to be some type of max effort work. If we're trying to increase our rate of force development, that's going to be some type of dynamic effort work. And if we're trying to get a little bit bigger, right, we might do some repeated effort work. You know, then from there we go to phase four. That's going to be any type of special exercises that's going to work on weak points. Um, you know, we, if it's a lower body day, we might work on some single leg, posterior chain, um, you know, get on to, you know, some type of specialty equipment. And, you know, then phase five is going to be our core. And that's going to be, you know, either rotational, standing, throwing, planking, right? The options are endless. Um, you know, then phase six, that's going to be any type of metabolic conditioning, depending on where our athletes are at in that calendar year. So if they're in season, don't need it. We don't need We don't need to do any type of conditioning. If they're off season, depending on how far they're out, it's going to dictate how much we do. Uh, you know, phase seven, that's going to be any type of box breathing, right? Cardinal breathing. We take that from Buddy Morris, uh, you know, he does a lot of that, you know, cardinal breathing is what he calls it. So it's basically getting those athletes back down to parasympathetic dominance, um, getting them ready to recover as fast as they can as soon as they leave the weight room. And then obviously phase eight is homework. So our athletes leave the weight room. Let's say some kid isn't doing their box squat cro- you know, correctly. Maybe they weren't hinging properly. We'll talk to them about how they got a hinge and say, while you're watching the Super Bowl tonight, do about 100 box squats to your couch. You know what I mean? Something like that. So, um, you know, like I said, I've taken from a ton of different people but it all comes back to the conjugate style, right? This is why I love conversations like this, is that we have core foundational similarities. We're based on the same system, but our executions in terms of our terminology and selection or sequence is different, but it always ends the same, right? Right. We have achieved success with our athletes and our injury rate is low. Yep. Um, <laughs> It's like we all have the core outcome. It just still baffles me of why strength coaches want to um, argue over methods. Like we've got more common ground than we do um, been enemies, I guess. It's just a baffling thing because we want athletes to get better and we want to reduce injury rates. And if you have a better system than I do, I want to know about it because that's how we are. Uh, our, we keep our success rates up. Um, but even been like based on our ecosystem, I haven't talked to a coach yet who replicates anything one for one. And it's just, uh, I think the more we get that out there to show people's interpretation of the same foundational system just goes to show like, oh, 
I'm going to steal that. Like the way when you took stuff, Joe DeFranco, and then you were like, well, I can use Donny Thompson stuff here. That's huge because you're pulling from all, I mean, the, I won't say the founders, but the guys who are our pillars are in our, and peers in our um, profession. Right. This is the way it should be rather than go, I'm going to go read this book, and this book is fucking it. So, <laughs> yeah. Like how many people have gone and read Super Training and go, you're all a bunch of morons. That's it, right? It's like, yeah. go, uh, Louis, make you go read three books, and then you can go talk about the first one. Um, well, Dustin, it's been a blast talking to you. Um, time's running out on my side here. What's, um, what's one question you wish I'd have asked you? I mean, honestly, I think we covered quite a bit of it. You know what I mean? I think we had a pretty damn good conversation, and you know, I'm just more excited about getting down there and, and doing, doing one in-house. Um, what are exciting things coming up? You've got enough things going on, but what's the most exciting things you're looking for in 2023? Yeah, like I said, we just purchased a new facility. Um, this facility is going to be some, you know, something that I've been dreaming of. You know what I mean? Uh, we're going to have everything in this thing, man. I'm, I'm going to have everything. PRT. Uh, we're going to have uh, actual kitchen in there. We're going to have our performance meals. That's awesome. Uh, we're going to have a basketball court. We're going to have batting cages. Like we're going to have everything for the skills and everything. Right. But on top of it, we're going to have everything that you see in our gym right now is just going to be duplicated in a bigger facility. So we're going to be able to have more touch points and more athletes throughout the day. We'll have cold tubs, you know, hot tubs, that type of thing as well. Well, Dustin, I wish you every best of luck with everything you're doing. I appreciate you getting on today for this podcast. And I hope to see you down here sometime this year. Sounds good, man. I appreciate it, Tom.